Hi everyone. First off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose lands we are recording this podcast, and pay our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Yarnbury peoples, past, present and emerging. Let's go. Hello and welcome to The Familiar Strange. Brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia and Pacific, and the College of Arts and Social Sciences, produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association, and coming to you from the Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science. I'm your familiar stranger today, Alex DeLoya, together with my fellow strangers, Jody Lee Tremba. Hi, Alex. Simon Theobald. Hello. And Kirsty Wissing. Hello. Kirsty is a PhD candidate within the discipline of anthropology at the School of Culture, History and Languages here at the ANU. Her research focuses on customary attitudes to and ritual uses of water and other fluids in relation to ideas of cleanliness, purity and by extension morality. Thanks for coming on the show. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. All right, so I'll kick it off this week. What I've been thinking about is in the Facebook chats group, which I encourage everyone to join, there are quite a few people who seem to be interested in activist anthropology which is a really cool topic and something I can really get on board with. But there's a debate that I always come back to or an issue that I always come back to. When you're an activist anthropologist, how can you be an authority on a topic? So, for instance, the classic piece for me, I'd say, is um, by Nancy Sherpa Hughes, Primacy of the Ethical. If you haven't read it, we'll link to it in the show notes. But I always run into the issue that if you're an anthropologist and you're going in to generate knowledge on some level, if you go in really obviously picking a side, how can you convince others who might be sceptical? Can we go back just yep. for a minute and define activist in in this space? Mm. So what do we mean when we're talking about activist anthropologists? Yeah, I think that's actually a really good question because, I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of people working in native title, for instance, who may not be activist per se, but who would definitely be working towards a cause or see themselves as working towards a cause. Okay. So, Kirsty, this is something you've actually worked in. It is something I've worked in um, both in the Pilbara region in Western Australia and also in the Central Australian region in the Northern Territory as well. Lawyers are advocates. They're actively representing and, and sort of taking instructions for their constituents. You're doing research. I would say that the majority of people working in, in those sort of organisations are there because there is an empathy, there is an understanding of respect and an appreciation. But technically, according to the system, you're an objective expert that sits on the sidelines. And so it is interesting trying to balance these two things as well. So when we're talking about activist anthropology then, I mean, we're talking a lot in this conversation about legality and Mm. legal contexts, but what other contexts are we talking about? It's a funny thing that that I took us down this route because that Mm. actually, when I first was thinking about this, was not what I was thinking about. I was thinking about a lot of anthropologists who work alongside activist movements. In those contexts, often the anthropologists, you know, they're working for X and X group or they've been commissioned by said group. Oh, really? They've actually been hired by that They can be. That's generally got to be very big movement, but it happens. Or more often they'll be, let's say, called in. They'll be the specialist Mm. in the area and they're called in by that group. That's probably more accurate. Okay. I know for a lot of people's perspectives, that's going to cast doubt on what you have to say. Because you're no longer coming at it unbiased. Exactly. Which is, of course, what Sherpa Hughes was trying to critique. Mm. Right. But nevertheless, I don't quite see how she squares the circle. I always end up being a devil's advocate, don't I? Um, yes. Yeah. yeah. That's why we have you on the show. <laughs> the yeah. fall guy for other opinions. I 
kind of profoundly disagree with the idea that Shepard Hughes, that there's a kind of universal morality that everyone shares and therefore you can buy into it and come out on the side of right always. I think there is a kind of bit of a tendency in anthropology at the moment to work in that frame of mind. I think a lot of people have come and said, you know, oh, no, there is anthropology should come out on the side of the good as though it was a kind of clear cut. As if good existed in a binary. Everyone produces knowledge to some end. No one produces knowledge with the idea that it's going to go and sit in a drawer and no one else is going to read it, like my thesis. <laughs> <laughs> but they produce it to influence people, and I think that's inherently an activist position. I mean, is it about taking sides as such? So yes. I- sometimes it is. <laughs> take like a side. No, my point is no. In my research space, and I was researching universities, and there is often a binary between academics and non-academics in universities, but my activist stance, if you like, was if I could produce something that would get these people to understand each other and understand each other's perspectives, then potentially they could all work together to make a difference. My goal was actively to not take a side and that that was possible because part of what we're trained to do is be empathetic to whoever we're talking to and try and put ourselves in the shoes of whoever we're talking to. Is that still activism? Well, there's, a, I guess, a question of weighting the information of all the size that you put in. So when I started research and uh, was introduced to one person in, in the community that I spent most of the time in Akumufia in Ghana, I said, I'm looking at water issues, I'm looking at hydropower, I'm looking, you know, I'm trying to understand from the different perspectives. And he said, whose side are you on? Mm. And I said, I'm trying to understand all the perspectives. And he said, well, you know, you can't do that. Maybe I'm feeling like there's not enough of one particular story. So I'm adding that to the mix. But I am being an activist in the sense that you can't fit everything in. Mm. And so you you are influencing if you want to go back to Simon's argument. Unfortunately, you're right. We can't fit everything in this podcast. Ooh, Correct. Nice segue. <laughs> you were waiting for that. Mm-hmm. So to keep moving along. Jody, what have you been thinking about this week? I have been thinking about fintech. I didn't even know fintech was a word until quite recently, but it's a pretty fun one that has nothing to do with fish. It's about technology that is aiming to make change in financial areas. The goal of blockchain is to eliminate the likelihood of corruption because basically the points in the transaction process where corruption may have happened in the past, the humans are now replaced by technologies. And so the trust goes into the technology rather than into humans. And so we should remove them and replace them with technologies that are created by ethical humans. And we've just got to trust that the technologies were created by ethical humans uh, and that therefore that's going to be a more effective way of transacting with other humans, that we basically need to be mediated by robots. So I guess my question for you guys is what does this say about the current era that we are so determined to replace humans with technology in situations where we are really trying to evoke trust and produce trust? So I wonder if you could argue, and I'm thinking about this as I say it, Mm. not so much that it's that we trust in the machines, but that it's that the machine offers a sort of halo effect or more that the creator offers a halo effect over its machines. What halo effect? So the halo effect is the classic logical fallacy that if you trust this person in a particular field or they're an expert in a particular field, you kind of trust them in other things. 
It's why you get a cricketer to sell you breakfast cereal. So then is it actually as much as anything the status of the creator that is just assumed to be embodied through the machine? I don't know, though, because I think the the goal of something like blockchain is that the humans become obsolete. You're not supposed Mm. to know who created the system. What about the regulators, though? They're still humans. So if you're going down this idea of trusting technology more than humans, and even if ethical and and deemed to be trustworthy humans are designing and then writing themselves out of the technology in terms of influence is the next rational step that the regulation should also be by technology like where do we where do we follow this through to Simon who do you trust who do I trust <laughs> it's not an exhaustive list by the sounds of it yeah. <laughs> no, who do, who you do trust? I actually trust I don't know I think it's premised on the idea right that technology is uh, neutral to this question of trust Right, you don't you need to worry about whether you trust a machine to do something because you and you don't even have to worry about the virtuous programmer because the machine ideally does it does its own thing independently of whether humans are there or not. So Simon, what have you been thinking about this week? I've almost been requested to speak about something, which is unusual because I never have anything interesting or important to say. Blatant lies. Blatant lies. <laughs> I have, I suppose, been thinking about the death of Qasem Soleimani. I'm not an expert. Let me say this. Just because I'm an an anthropologist of Iran doesn't mean I'm an expert in all things Iranian. So I actually don't know that much about Qasem Soleimani. He was perhaps not the head, but certainly... uh, No, I think he was the head of the Quds Force, which is the kind of Iranian Islamic Revolutionary Guards foreign, depending on your view, terror force slash liberation force. Depends who you are. And he was assassinated in Iraq, apparently on the way to hand a message of, I don't know, how would you describe it? Some kind of attempt to to make up with Saudi Arabia. At the time, he was assassinated by the US. Donald Trump gloated about his assassination, saying, you know, we've taken another terrorist out. And there was some controversy because unlike people like bin Laden or uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the head of ISIS, it was the extrajudicial killing of a member of government personnel of an independent country. And there are ramifications. What does this mean for people's perspectives on truth? So in South America, they are all about conspiracy theories. Anything that bad that sort of happens was probably the CIA. But of course, the CIA did really change governments down there, so it's not totally unreasonable. Do these events have similar effects on Iranians? I mean, I don't want to speak for all of Iranians because it's a huge, there's 80 million... Yeah, and I don't speak um, for all South Americans. Yeah. I mean, for me, in some ways, you've touched on a really interesting idea, Alex, which is this idea of truth in politics. I mean, definitely conspiracy theories are rife in Iran and there are all sorts of ideas about, you know, shadowy cabals of people who run, who actually run the world. And I spent a lot of my field work listening to people tell me, you know, did you know that so-and-so is actually in charge? And I was like, oh, Okay. What I think is interesting, though, is I think, I mean, I think in the West, for instance, we're used to this idea of politics being a fairly dirty business. And the assumption is that it just inherently is a kind of mucky thing. You muck down, you make deals, you, you're kind of loose with the truth always. Whereas I think in Iran, there's a notion that, not that necessarily politics is not like that, but that it should not be like that, mm-hmm. that it should be a more noble virtue. And when things like the assassination happen, it also adds to a sense that there's a deep kind of injustice in the world. Can I ask a question then, in the sense that the US didn't deny but took responsibility for this this assassination as well? If you're talking about this idea that people should sort of be 
truthful and honest in the way that they lead, is this sort of really aggressive stance better than denying or Mm. not? Yeah, that's a really good point because he just came right out and was like, yeah, I killed him. So there's an interesting kind of correspondence here. It's a linguistic one. Mm. The idea of truth in Persian is they use an Arabic term, which is haq, and related to haqqat. And when you say like haqqat or haqqatan, they mean like that, that's the truth, right? But haq can also mean rights. Mm. And I think there's a notion that rights are kind of not inseparable from truth. So even when Donald Trump gets up there and says, you know, I brazenly killed Qasem Soleimani and I don't care. I mean, he might be telling the truth, but what's he doing is infringing upon this connection between truth and right. Mm-hmm. Rights. Mm-hmm. So Kirsty, what have you been thinking about this week? These ideas of truths and rights is very interesting in how you make again what Jody was talking about, not taking sides. How do you how do you work when there's very different ways of understanding the same situation? And so I'm looking at these ideas of who's in out, who's trusted, who's not, who do you share water with, who do you block it with around a hydropower dam in the southern part of Ghana and it's called the Akazombo Dam and it's sort of helped build forward independent Ghana but there's so many different truths around that and there's so many different ways of understanding the same story as well. Well, I think there's probably two things. I'm trying to understand how people trust and relate to each other. And I'm playing with these ideas of clean water, trust in the person that's providing it, these ideas of purity and who's in and who's out, and looking at the work of Mary Douglas, who's very well known in anthropology circles and purity and danger and sort of seeing how society is defined in that space. But I'm also looking at these multiple ways of understanding the same thing. So how do you define water? Is it clean because you can't see dirt in it? Is it clean because a scientist with a test tube says it is? Is it clean because an aunt provided it to you and so you drink it? Is it clean because it came in a packaged bottle? Or is it clean because it's got spiritual values? And this is the part that I'm really interested in is how do we sort of play with the material things like water and fluids and participate in them, but also experience these larger ideas of trust of rights when you bring in sort of what is a purity when it's something spiritual rather than not. In some rituals relating to water in Ghana, they actively blend fluids. They put other things like blood and like alcohol in a ceremonial context together with water to make it a spiritually pure thing. And then it can fix situations if someone's died and they need to sort of clean up after death to feel they can return to social activities if there's social sort of tensions between people or between things happening in the broader environment and they interpret that as sort of a spiritual disapproval of the way that people are leading or that something went on how do we use this idea of blending and how do we actually embrace the messiness and the sort of blending together to get some sort of purity. Can I ask a question on behalf of non-anthro Absolutely. listeners? So Mary Douglas, Purity and Danger, quick overview. The big detail or the big sort of phrase that people often use is dirt as matter out of place. And she's not just talking about the stuff on the ground that can get a little bit muddy, you know, the physical dirt. She's talking about these things that are hard to place in society that feel like they don't necessarily fit. So Akumul traditional area where I work in Ghana, there's a particular group called Akumul. They're part of one language group called Akan, but they're surrounded by other language groups who have different ways of using water who've come into the area because there's been changes to the water because of the hydropower dam. 
and they have different ways of spiritually or physically or economically engaging with the water. So I'm looking at how these ideas of, of cleanliness sort of show who they trust, who's mm. in, who's out, from other sort of local perspectives with other people living consistently in the area, but also in terms of these national ideas of, of government. But then how do people on the ground in Akumufia bring together this idea of purity, that idea of purity, this idea of controlling water, that idea of controlling water, and make it work in context, not in, not in a nice theoretical way, but what ideas do they draw on to make a claim to water? Okay, so how do the Akumu determine which contexts having blood in the water is good and bad? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think when I'm looking at these ideas of cleanliness and purity, it comes down to who has who has the right authority, maybe these things that I was saying, to be able to define, A, what water is, how it should be used, who has rights and access to it, and who's sort of part of that community and part of not as well. So if you, as a, an outsider to that mm. space, came into that space and put blood in the water... It wouldn't be considered pure and it wouldn't be considered right as well. So who but is the authority? This is interesting because you've got people who are chiefs, you've got female leaders who are called queen mothers, you've got people who attend to particular shrines for spirits and deities as well. These people are deemed to have to have the authority to decide how, how something is pure and how it's not. When you add a male ram, it's blood into water, that's pure. But if you have a menstruating woman coming into an area, that's considered impure. So you start to see actually not everyone's interests and say is the same in society. So I'm looking at these ideas of power within these claims of inclusive purity and morality. The other thing that's really interesting is, of course, Ghana, like many, many different places in the world, is not a static area. It continues to change. It's continued to adjust. It's had a range of interactions. And so you've got Christianity, which is really, really heavily understood in a whole range of denominations there. You've got these ideas of being Ghanaian, not just being an Akumu. You've got these ideas of, of global management of water as well. So how do people, instead of going as either or, actively blend together mm. and do we trust people more in that situation? If, if purity and cleanliness is related to morality, if we make purity added and blended rather than this kind of separate thing that you always quarantine off, do we trust people more because of that? Or do we trust people less because it's seen as a bit messy and murky? I think people trust more when they think that a situation is messy and that a person is going to be able to clean it up. In Iran, where the ideal that is being worked towards all the time is perfection, mm. for example. Whoa. Too much? Too hard? That's, too that's, big a statement? That's too big a statement. Okay, you, you rephrase it. The idea of perfection is something that is pervasive in society. Right. So in that context, is messiness a preferred state? Is the blurring of boundaries a preferred state? I don't think there's a preference for messiness or cleanliness. Mm. I think these are kind of culturally determined questions. It's like when people say, people say to me, you know, oh, humans are so messy. But whether or not we decide humans are messy or very clean, it's what culture says. Whether we say humans are messy or humans are clean, it's a social question. It's not a, it's not a question of kind of empirical reality. And on that note, that's all we have time for today. I'd like to thank Jody. <laughs> Thanks, Alex. I'd like to thank Simon. Thank you. And I'd like to thank Kirsty. Thank Particularly you very much for Kirstie. having me. It's good. It's fun. been great. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, and me, your host, Alex. Thanks, Alex. Yeah.
So, today's episode was produced by all of us at The Familiar Strange. Our executive producers are the wonderful Deanna Cato and Matthew Fung. Subscribe to The Familiar Strange Podcast. You can find us on iTunes and all the other familiar places, including Spotify. And if you'd like to support us, please check out our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash The Familiar Strange. Not The Strange Familiars, which is another fun podcast, just not ours. Remember to, to join us at the Familiar Strange Chats Facebook group. We like to have discussions, we love to hear from you guys, and we love it when you talk to each other. Talk about stuff from the show, anything else, help with your anthropology homework. We're there for you. You can find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com tweet at TFS Tweets or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Music by Pete Dabro. Special thanks to Nick Farrelly, Will Grant, Martin Pierce and Maud Rowe. Thanks for listening and until next time, keep talking strange.